Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here and associate professor of Old Testament, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hi, Scott. Also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey, great to be here. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology, Grace Sutanto, and our man in Jakarta, awaiting visa. How are you doing, Gray? Fantastic. Great to be here, Scott. So Reform Theological Seminary has a quarterly that we put out called Reform Faith and Practice, and the latest issue just got released, Volume 5, Issue 1, and I want to point that out to people who are at home. This is a great free resource, primarily but not exclusively made up of RTS faculty members and uh, writing on a variety of different topics, whether it's book reviews or other issues that are you know, facing the world today, the world of theology, and I've really benefited from it because it, it's really giving an outlet for people to write on issues that are arising in our theological circles. You know, sometimes I feel as if, uh, you know, you're kind of getting the bread that falls from the table of other journals in whatever discourse those scholars are involved in. And I've really enjoyed Reform Faith and Practice because it's always written by folks who I'm interested in hearing from, and they're dealing with issues that are kind of facing our particular theological neck of the woods. So I, I want to highlight that to everyone, that that's a resource out there. I feel that way too. Like there are certain issues that crop up. We, we like a big tent. We like, we're all on the same team. We're all, we partner with Christians all over the world. But there are also issues that just come up that are kind of within our particular sphere. And it's so nice to have something that's kind of dedicated to that, that where, where, where something can be explored with depth and academic integrity and that, that, is, that is particular to us while part of a broader conversation. Yeah, Tommy, I totally agree. Uh, I, you know, when I read the journal, I, I read things that are very uh, theologically precise uh, while at the same time, things that are very pastorally relevant and sensitive to uh, things that are going on immediately within the context of the church, even personally. I mean, there's stuff devotionally that uh, uh, our guys are contributing or that our contributors are sharing that are all really insightful. So you do really get a wide breadth of materials uh, within that journal. It's interesting. You know, I this comes up regularly and I'm not sure what the number is anymore, but RTS at the most recent accounting, Tommy, you might have a more recent number has, I think 35 to 40 members of faculty. Yeah, that's right. Now making it you know, the largest reformed faculty, at least in the West, uh, if not around the world. And I'm struck as I look at the faculty members who are writing in, in this journal, and I sometimes even forget, like, oh, yeah, I forget he's at RTS, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, oh, right, you know, I, I, I forgot that he also wrote on that topic. We had James Anderson here talking about, you know, analytic philosophy and theology, and I thought, oh, yeah, I, I forgot that that's one of the things James does. 
and it's a pleasure to hear someone who's coming in from with similar biblical theological commitments and values in terms of method and interpretation and is applying all of those tools to the the myriad of questions that are out there it's it's kind of like there's something that happens i think everyone's experienced this when you're, when you're talking to someone who's coming from way outside of your context it stretches you in one way because you get to see how someone with different eyes is looking at an issue and then when you're talking to someone who's closer into your context it stretches you in another way because you get to see how the tools that you have and the things that you're comfortable with um, might work in a setting that you're not used to applying them in. And um, you got to have both. You can't have one or the other. You don't want to just be stuck in your context or just be stuck outside of it. And uh, that's been something that I've really benefited from. Yeah. And you get the broadness and the depth of the journal as well, even in this particular issue that just came out a couple of weeks ago right? Uh, the issue mostly consists of papers that were given at the Paideia Center for Theological Discipleship conference that takes place once a year at RTS Orlando. And, you know, you got a paper there, Scott, and also there are also papers from the Paideia Center conference for, by Mike Allen, by Sinclair Ferguson, by Scott Swain on Sources of the Self Assurance by Ferguson, and also uh, Swain on male and female and theological anthropology. These are just fantastic papers. And again, even here, you get a sense of the broad range of subjects being discussed, but also the unity that is very exciting. There's a reform approach to so many different topics being discussed, even in this particular issue itself. And um, I'm excited to see your particular article in there, Scott. And I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, thanks. So the, the, the little bit of the background to the paper the idea started way back when I was actually a professor at RTS Orlando, and um, we were we were taking turns as faculty members preaching at chapel. And I remember early on, I decided, well, I'm going to start going through the major creeds of the Bible, you know, kind of major verses that get cited over and over again throughout Scripture, as if kind of like, well, we all know that X is true, you know, creedal statement. <laughs> and then, uh, so because of that, let's then kind of do this or develop, uh, you know, our understanding of theology in this direction. And I got to Deuteronomy 6 and got kind of stuck there. You know, I thought I'd do a sermon on one of these creeds every time I preach. And I got stuck on Deuteronomy 6, um, you know, which is known as the Shema uh, after the Hebrew word that starts that verse, which is the, just the word uh, here in the imperative. And I got stuck on the Shema, just kind of working through all of the places where the Shema shows up and where it gets used throughout scripture. And that became a book called The Wholeness Imperative that was published uh, a couple of years ago. And um, that was really geared more towards sort of a pastoral, you know, popular pastoral audience and then really work through some of the linguistic issues and more of the technical, biblical, theological material that, that was informing its discussion. And so when I got a chance to speak at the Padea Conference in January, which we should plug the Padea Conference, it's run out of RTS Orlando, but it's really a, a network of reading groups, helping people grow in their awareness, in their grasp of the great, you know, the great history of theology that we have here. Um, in the church, really laying hold of the, you know, the rule of faith, as it were, you know, the, the stream of orthodoxy, and then having these, these gatherings every year where we 
come together and talk through some of the issues related to what we've talked, you know, what we've been talking about over the course of the year. So Padea conference is a great resource for those of you um, who are interested to go to the RTS Orlando site to learn more about it. Well, Gray, and you spoke there last year, isn't that correct? Yeah, I was in a panel there last year and definitely benefited from the Paideo Center a lot. We had a Paideo group here in Jakarta, which I led for a year for two semesters. We read through Luther's Catechism and Gregory Nazianzus on God and Christ. And also, uh, it was really surprising to me how a lot of the urban Jakarans here were really eating it up. I mean, not surprising in the sense that I would be surprised if they didn't enjoy it, but that it was it was more than I expected, right? Uh, they were making applications from Luther's Catechism, for example, to their lives. And it was really amazing to see them making contemporary applications from the text itself, right? Especially Luther's comments, for example, about honoring your parents in an Asian context. That was very surprising. But um, yeah, the Paideia Center is doing exciting things. I think it's part and parcel of the vision of reform Catholicity that Swain and Allen have been pushing for a number of years now. And it's a very exciting theological movement. But coming back to your article, perhaps, Scott, um, you talked a lot about wholeness there. And your book is, of course, called The Wholeness Imperative, how we ought to be whole in light of uh, the unity that we see in God. Can you speak more a little bit about that, perhaps? Yeah, so... I mean, the, uh, the idea developed out of the Shema and this idea of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and loving the Lord with your whole heart. This is phraseology that shows up over and over again in the scripture. And I think a lot of uh, you know, Bible readers read that and they think, well, this is just religious language. How else would you talk about worship? And they don't actually notice that this is, this is actually Deuteronomic language. The idea of your whole heart being bent towards the worship of the Lord, you know, that, that phrase was coined you know, by, by Moses here on the steps of Moab. And when it gets reiterated down throughout redemptive history, it's a reference back to this idea. I mean, when, when David... You know, leaves the throne to Solomon. He says, "Lord, love the Lord your God with your whole heart." He's he's citing Deuteronomy six. This isn't just good fatherly advice. This is theological advice. This is this is uh, has a canonical heritage to it that we need to be aware of. And and, and the logic of the Shema goes something like this. I mean, everybody's heard this um, verse before. It's it's been famous. You know, going all the way back to Second Temple Judaism when a Jewish person would awake in the morning and recite it to themselves and recite it again before going to bed. And, you know, the idea being that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? That's the beginning of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Therefore, or, you know, and then you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And that's, that's the translation that's so, um, that persists today in large part because of the way the King James translates it, you know, but what I try to point out is the logic of the Shema is that God has these characteristics. One of them is that he is our God. And then the other one is that he is God alone, or he is one God, you know, something like that. Um, And that as a result of God being ours, and I talk a little bit about what it means for God to be ours. It can't mean that we own him, uh, we can't be like the idol maker in Isaiah who 
carves a statue and then puts it up on his mantelpiece and says, you are my maker, you know, and the prophet is like, you just made him, you just made the idol. How can you say that he's your maker? Right. You know, we don't own our gods like an idolater would. Um, and yet he is our God. And it raises the question, how is he our God? And, and I argue that he is our God and that he is bound to us in covenant and we are bound to him. And so that relationship is marked by love and acknowledgement and obedience and uh, you know, other terms that we can use from elsewhere in the Pentateuch, like the fear of the Lord and that kind of thing. So he's ours covenantally, and he's one, he's, he's singular, he's wholly devoted um, you know, towards his purposes and his intents. He's not divided up like Baal might have been, where you could, go to, you could go to Hebron and offer a sacrifice to the Baal there, and if you don't get what you want, you can go down the road to uh, Gaza and get, then offer a sacrifice to that Baal, and he might give you something that the other Baal wouldn't give you. You know, Adonai, the Lord, is not that way, right? And this is kind of the hard lesson that Abram is learning uh, as he's gallivanting around the countryside, going to uh, Philistia and Egypt, and everywhere he goes, he thinks, well, I must be out of the Lord's jurisdiction now, right? And uh, so we have, like, for instance, these sister-wife stories where he, where he emphasizes the part of his, uh, his sisterly relationship with um, Sarah and not his wifely, wifely relationship because he's afraid of whoever is the authority, the principality in that region, right? And what does he keep learning everywhere he goes? Guess what? Adonai is Lord, even in those places, okay? So he's learning that the Lord is one and that the Lord is bound to us. And this is theology is given articulation in Deuteronomy 6. And we just keep getting this reiterated, this idea that God is ours, and he's one, and we're to love him in the same way. We're, we're to love him uh, covenantally, and we're to love him with the whole of ourselves. We're not to be divided up like the bales of the ancient world, but everything from our inner parts, you know, being the heart. Remember in the, in the Bible, the heart is often uh, not just the seat of the emotions, but it's the seat of reason. It's the inner person. The nefesh, which, you know, the, the, the word, for nefesh, which is translated um, soul uh, in the King James and in many other translations, really is referring to the whole of the self. Okay, if you, if you do something to your nefesh, you're doing it to yourself. It can even mean your body, which interestingly is how uh, Robert Alter translates it in his most recent translation of the Old Testament. He translates it body, which I think is, is good and fitting for this particular passage. And then the last part, your strength, which without going into it, that's, that's a huge etymological problem. And yet when we look at all of the early translations of this passage in the Greek and in the Aramaic, there's an emphasis really on material strength or what we might call capital, right? You know, all of your inner person is to love the Lord. All of yourself is to love the Lord. Moses is going to unpack this later. He's going to say, put the words on your heart. And then he's going to say, and bind them to your body, right? Your frontlets and your, and your, your arm. And then, also with all of your external effect, all of your capital or your estate, you know, write it on your walls, put it on your gates, talk about it when you're on your business trips. You know, all of the person is to be devoted to the love of the Lord, just as, the love, just as God is one and, as, and is devoted to us in covenant. And taking that theology, it's kind of amazing. Once you understand that, it just makes sense of so much of what comes afterward in Scripture 
right? And you can thread that up through the histories. You can thread that through the prophets, particularly Jeremiah, who's so interested in the book of Deuteronomy. All of his theology, his whole, his whole theological endeavor seems to be framed around this idea of returning to the Lord with all of your heart, right? You'll seek me. When you seek me, you'll find me. When you seek me with your whole heart, citing the Shema. And it also seems to be you know, pretty pretty crucial to Jesus' ministry. This is about, this is what Jesus is about doing. He is drawing us to the Lord, creating the groundwork by which we can go to the Lord in the way that is fitting with our whole selves being devoted to his worship, our inner self, our, our bodies, our, our whole selves, and our outward effect. And um, I, I, this paper, I wrap up and go a lot of different directions with it. But this paper, I wrap up with John 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer. And it's this idea that as Jesus is closing the high priestly prayer, he's been praying on behalf of his disciples. And then he prays at the very end for everyone who believes because of his disciples message, of course, which is the church he's praying on behalf of his people in history. And he prays in these terms that are very similar to the logic of the Shema. You know, this idea that, he and the Father are one, right? He's, he's kind of updating the language of the Shema to account for the revelation of the second person of the Trinity, and then calling his people to be one as he and the Father are one, to be reflecting that, that divine character of, of unity, of wholeness. And what's the result of that? So that love, right? The love of the Father for the Son, right, might be revealed in the world and others might see it. You know, now we're talking about outward effect. There's a similar logic between the end of the high priestly prayer in Deuteronomy six. And um, actually a great resource for that. I found this later actually after I had first written this sermon, but Richard Bauckham, I think does a really good job in his uh, book on the gospel of John called the gospel of glory, which is a wonderful book, but he does a really good job of kind of tying some of these themes together, this idea of wholeness from Deuteronomy 6 being sort of in the religious language of Jesus' day and then finding, he doesn't call it this, but it's almost like, a, it's almost like an exposition by way of prayer in the high priestly prayer, right? This exposition of Deuteronomy 6, that this really is not just the end of Moses' interest for redemption. This is the end of Jesus' interest for redemption. This is what he wants the end to look like for us to love the Lord our God with all of ourselves. So I'm kind of unpacking that theme of wholeness from Deuteronomy 6, Jeremiah, and then John 17, and just showing how there are these you know, echoes or reverberations of this idea throughout, um, throughout the scriptural record. I really liked how you mapped all of that onto a pack pastoral and practical problems. So you've got this like covenant theological thematic overview here, this, this analysis of the theme of wholeness, but that cons consistently, you know, we're, you're mapping that onto the problem of feeling fractured. And there's a number of like angles we could talk about that, mm -hmm. you know, personal, personally feeling fractured, a fractured society, division, you know, there's all sorts of areas where that applies but what was particularly interesting to me is we had this theological concept covenant theology which is part of what makes us tick i mean reform faith and practice that go goes hand in hand with 
covenant theology. It's part of our core and it's practically and pastorally important. So I I loved how we, you use that kind of covenant emphasis to answer increasingly relevant practical and pastoral kinds of issues. It goes to the robustness of, of covenant theology as a theological and pastoral concept. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. This whole thing makes sense in light of the covenantal approach. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've talked about this with brothers who don't share that covenantal understanding of the text. And there is, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of resistance that you run into just, just in terms of sort of a cognitive resistance, trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, you're saying that Moses and Jesus are working toward the same thing. And you go, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a key idea. You know, interestingly in this one, by the way, Typically, even in covenantal circles, when we talk about the Old Testament, there's this tendency to talk about an emphasis on the collective. And when you get to the New Testament, there's an emphasis on the, on the sort of individual faith, right? Individual works of redemption. And what's interesting in this arrangement from the, from the Shemad regarding wholeness is that it's actually in the Old Testament where you get the individual application, right? Bind it to your hands, talk about it with your kids, put it on your doorposts, right? It's almost by definition talking about an individual application. When Jesus takes it in John 17, he's talking about it as collective wholeness, the wholeness of the people, right? Yeah. As one. But you see that there really is, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like Moses is saying, go do this. And Jesus is saying, and this is how it will be done, right? It's going to be through my work, my union with the father. And he, he doesn't talk about in this media passage, but it comes up. Um, almost immediately after the role of the spirit in being the unifying factor. And I think that gives us a good expression as how the gospel, you know, how the law anticipates the gospel. Um, oftentimes you'll get the mandate or the end point, the goal, what we're trying to do, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And in Christ's exposition of the text, we see how it's actually going to work. We get to see how the sausage is going to be made, which is through the role of the spirit uniting the believer, you know, regenerating the heart and uniting the people of God as, as one people. And the covenantal approach gives you that big grand arc, right? It gives you the theater in which all this grand arc of theology can take place and answer, like you said, yeah, it, you know, these, these very practical pastoral questions, like how do I stop feeling so fragmented in this world? I'm reminded about a particular phrase in Herman Boving's dogmatics where he says that covenant theology unites the dependence of Schleiermacher and the freedom of Kant, where he argues that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you can now freely obey the law. This is actually an expression of your personality, an expression of your freedom, rather than something externally or mechanically imposed upon you. And that this really maps on to your understanding of fragmentation and wholeness as well, because for, for Boving's understanding, sin results in fragmentation. Sin results in the tearing asunder of the organism of your individual self, right? Your faculties are at war with one another. And so your will wants to do something, but you don't know how to do it, or you know that something is right, but your will is not wanting to do it, right? And so he argues that what the spirit does is exactly reunites the whole person and orients it towards this covenant fellowship with God. And so that this 
law is no longer burdensome to you, but actually becomes an expression of your own freedom. And that's, I think, always a, a phrase that has haunted my my mind since I've read that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The in in, in Hebrew. There are a bunch of different words for this thing that we call sin, right? You know, they show up in your translations like transgressions and iniquity and all that stuff, you know, and they, they do, they all provide different metaphors for what sin is. Sin is, can, is a burden, right? And sin is a transgression. It's, it's a breaking line, you know, it's breaking across a boundary. It is a pollution of a type. And it's also the severing of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that in, probably because of my own ignorance, but sitting in Christian churches growing up, I often saw sin as kind of pollution or as burden, but I had missed the idea of sin as unnecessary breaking of my life, up of my own existence, right? And uh, breaking of my relationship with God, which creates this fragmentation. So the idea of sin being a shutting off in my life of other aspects of what my life could be in its wholeness unto God in Christ. Right. Um, recognizing that repentance is actually, it's, it's a healing of this wound. It's a healing of this severing. So you're repenting towards the better thing right now. And people would be like, well, yeah, that's obvious. Right. But for some reason that, that metaphor of broken fractured life being made whole was a powerful aspect to me of repentance and worship that I hadn't really realized, I think, personally, as a kid growing up in a Christian family, right? And that was kind of powerful for me in terms of just thinking through what I'm doing when I repent. That, that idea of, of like covenant as relationship was actually pretty powerful for me too, though not as a kid, much, much later. I feel like having nerded out on theology early, I, I kind of entered into covenant theology through this technical side of things, uh, a bond made in blood, and, you know, and the, the kind of precise definitions of, of covenant theology. And then and in the academic phase of, of my life, really got interested into covenant theology because of the hermeneutical side of things, uh, how to read scripture as a coherent whole. And then as a parent, I have to describe covenant theology to my kids. And, well, we have a children's catechism. It's right there. Uh, It's right on my bookshelf right here. We have a children's catechism. And the answer in the children, what is a covenant in the children's catechism is very simple. It's a relationship that God establishes with us. And that, that word relationship kind of stuck with me as, oh, yeah, that, that answers both the personal definitional kind of character of covenant. It's a, it's a, a relationship established between me and God. God always acts on my behalf in terms of a relationship that he establishes. It's, it's that personal and theological, but it also captures that hermeneutical. Relationships change and grow and develop, and hopefully in naturally forming relationships, develop well from from one stage of glory to another Uh, and it just really it really unified that for me and i think it really maps on to the language of wholeness too and uh, we're we're moving from relationships which are fundamentally fractured and broken and shattered and polluted and all those words that you mentioned to a relationship that is full and whole and complete and has a has a telos to it and that from we can trace that personally and existentially 
uh, and spiritually in our own lives. We can trace it redemptive historically throughout the scripture as God restores our relationships with, uh, with himself. And then we can trace it horizontally, you know, getting at that New Testament theme and the high priestly prayer as our relationship with Jesus restores the wholeness to culture and the world, uh, to the ends of the earth. That's awesome. Anytime you see that kind of large framework of scripture and you can pull these threads, you know, in a variety of different areas, though not in an infinite amount of areas. That's the other thing I'm always struck by. You can pull these threads and one could be wholeness and one could be temple and one could be God as warrior and one could be, you know, God as king or, you know, or, 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 or palace, creation as palace for God, you know, and that, those kinds of things. You can pull those threads and it's like the whole story all of a sudden comes into focus. And even passages in Revelation that have been bouncing around in your head and you couldn't understand them. I use Revelation because as an Old Testament scholar, that's a tough one. Um, you know, they're bouncing around in your head and you, and you see all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute. This, this is a part of the whole story right? This, this fits so well with what God was doing way back in the garden, right? And I can see how the, I can see how the, the uh, you know, how the plane lands and it does give you a framework through which we can think about not just the Bible, but our daily experience. Well, you know, Scott, we, you and I, we have talked a lot over the years about, um, about uh, these themes of the heart and uh, added Deuteronomy it, it, and the way that that just sort of thematically flows and and throughout the history of salvation and and it it's something i've always loved talking with you about uh you know i've sat in your class lectures in in the prophets where you know you really develop this a lot and it's fantastic it's beautiful and uh and as i was reading uh, uh your article you know i i appreciated the covenantal structure or context in which you mentioned this it's something that reminded me again I wondered, as you talked about the oneness of God in its ancient context and not immediately jumping to monotheism, which of course is there, uh, and then seeing sort of the oneness of God reflected in the, well, the wholeness of God reflected in the wholeness of the individual as we are called to love the Lord holistically. And then especially as you kind of took Deuteronomy 6 as sort of the literary background of John 17, which by the way is fantastic, never would I have picked that up. And in John 17, where you see a lot of this, well, I guess you could say almost union with Christ type idea of the um, union of God, the Father with the Son, and then seeing the union that we have with Christ. I, I wonder, in Deuteronomy 6, do you think that we have sort of a, a proto, I don't know, union with Yahweh type idea maybe, that the, the you have the wholeness of Yahweh reflected in the wholeness of how we are called to uh, uh, love the Lord? What do you think? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Peter. And, and I think we're, we're getting a hint at a larger doctrine that's going to be, of course, expressed as Scripture, as Revelation develops. There's a Jewish scholar, Daniel Boyarin, who points out that because of passages in the Old Testament, like in Daniel, where you have a man or someone who's in the likeness of a man who's presented out of heaven, and then it's presented to the Ancient of Days, that you have two characters who are clearly divine and not angelic, not merely angelic or something like that, that he even argues that there was a notion in Second Temple Judaism of a plurality in the Godhead that did not 
you know, they did not refute the, the unity of the Godhead, right? That actually that wasn't what was controversial. I mean, now he, he doesn't say it this way, but I think we can imply it. That's not what's controversial about what Jesus is saying. What's controversial about what Jesus is saying is that he's saying that he's one of those persons of the Godhead, right? That's, that's the controversy. But yeah, I think you are getting, even in those early passages in scripture where you see the Lord, and then you have the name God, Elohim. So you have Adonai and Elohim, and then you have the spirit of God, and they're all actively working and involved in, in, in programs, and yet totally, totally unified in being one God of Deuteronomy 6 and elsewhere. There's none like you, you know, oh Lord. We can kind of go through all the Old Testament ways of talking about this this incredible character of God, that there's none like him. He's before the beginning and he's after the end and that there's nowhere you can go where he's not. And, and all of that, there is, the, there, there is the framework of wholeness and plurality. What we'll later say is plurality of persons, you know, but wholeness of substance, right? It's, it's being developed already in that Old Testament language. I mean, I use this, I've used this metaphor before, but it's as if the Old Testament's like a blueprint and the New Testament or the gospel or Jesus Christ, kind of however we want to put this, is, is, is the building. And you're getting the, the blueprint doctrines. You're getting the blueprint ideas that will then be built into the gospel message or the New Testament theology, the whole of the theology, right? But you're getting it in a kind of blueprint form that's going to be substantiated in the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You're getting these hints at, at this doctrine that's going to come into full bloom later on. Well, I'm, a, I'm having lots of thoughts now because uh, the author of Hebrews actually uses that language of, of blueprint to talk about the, the earthly tabernacle versus the heavenly tabernacle, or just a shadow, a hoopadegma, and you know, things like that. But then the, to Peter's point, the, the, concept of union with with Yahweh as it were you know that's actually there in the high priestly prayer as well Jesus is saying I you will be one with me as I am one with the father and by you know by the property of transference this is how you are united to the father it is through the son and then we get the spirit there as well through it is in the pouring out of the spirit that we are united to the son through whom we have union with the father. So the Trinitarian nature of the union we, we have covenantally expressed beginning in, you know, Genesis consummated at Pentecost and then uh, finally and, and ultimately in, in our full union uh, when the Lord returns all throughout scripture. Yeah. Amen. And that's why we need to, keep the old testament teaching in front of us because sometimes it even unpacks in a clearer way what's going to you know be in full substantiation right in the new testament right so we can understand what's being drawn you know I, I, students inevitably when i'm teaching a prophets class students will say you know someone will ask a question that will in a variety of forms be basically asking the same question which is why doesn't god send jesus the day after the fall yeah Right, <laughs> you know, and of course, too. What's that? I get that a lot too. And in, in when we talk about Acts, Romans, right? What? Well, why all this suffering? Why all of this trouble? Why all of this history? These prophets, 
these works of creation of, of beautiful um, you know victory why all of this have to take place and i think in a way it's so that we can understand what i mean this this isn't um i don't know this is explicitly taught i think it's implicitly taught in scripture it's so we can understand what was lost and what happened in the fall and what god did on our behalf you know we have a deeper understanding and you know substantiation for how we can worship him and why we worship him the way we do who what his character is you know, we could say this is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we get this long development of history that I think the author of Hebrews so wonderfully draws out, really probably in, in one of the most kind of concise and inclusive ways, right? The, the grand arc of the work of redemption in the world from old to new. It gives us all that language of types and and um, and shadows and copies and, and, and how we think through you know, the development from what was to what now is. And um, I think that's one of the beauties of the covenantal approach is that you don't separate the scriptures out into the Hebrew Bible being the Bible for Jewish people and the New Testament is the Bible for Christians, which I can't tell you even in Presbyterian churches how often I still hear that idea and missing the fact that this is God's word, right? The whole of it is, and they're speaking to each other. They're in conversation with each other, these two, these two sections, these two testaments. Yeah. And I love how, what I think is implicit in what you guys just said is a Trinitarian theology, Trinitarian metaphysics that undergirds all of this, right? There's a theological language for it that the Trinitarian processions is mirrored in the economic missions that because the father is the one who eternally generates the son and the spirit proceeds eternally from the father and the son, there is fullness of life in God. And as the God who is full of life, God is therefore able and is willing to give life to creatures and to share that life within himself to creatures that are outside of himself and bringing them united to himself by way of the spirit through the son and to the glory of God. So I think that another factor in discussing the unity of the scriptures, the unity of uh, the purpose of the scriptures to bring sinners into covenant with God to bring creatures into covenant fellowship with God is precisely the same God behind the scriptures that revealed himself in the scriptures and is inviting sinners to this God. So I think bifurcating old and new testaments as if these are two different audiences for two different purposes also misses the same God who is behind both testaments and the same purpose therefore behind both testaments. I wonder if there's even a, a somewhat of an indicative imperative substructure even in Deuteronomy 6 where, you know, here's the wholeness of God, the, you know, our Yahweh is one. Here is now the command to love the Lord your God holistically. So here it's almost a command to be what the Lord is going to make you to be. Um, and how much of this, you know, I mean, covenantally, this is exactly what the covenantal structure is here is you know here is uh the lord here is here is who he what he has done for you thus you are now a redeemed people here is now the commandments thus live as redeemed people you know the lord is one you will love the lord your god holistically in the same way i wonder if even to a certain extent paul as as much as the indicative imperative is to sort of 
traced in its origins to Paul. Paul is just really standing on Deuteronomy and, and the Old Testament at that point, and he's just reiterating what the Old Testament has been saying all along. And we got to give credit where credit's due. Paul didn't quite articulate it. I mean, you know, the Old Testament did. Moses did. That's great. No, it, that's, that's a clear Deuteronomic thought, too, as you know, Peter. Yeah, that idea that in many ways God's character and what he's done for us is the groundwork for how we are to act and behave. You know, Old Testament ethics are based in Old Testament ontology, ontology you know, particularly in the idea of why treat people in a certain way. Well, remember when we were slaves and the Lord brought us out and made us freedmen, you know, as it were. And that's sort of undergirds all of interhuman relationships in the Old Testament because of what God has already done for us. So I think you're absolutely right. This in, there's this indicative, imperative characteristic, even to Old Testament ethics. I, I think for a lot of people who read this, they, they would find, uh, you know, the thoughts that you have here very encouraging and refreshing because it's looking at their lives so holistically. You know, it's not just one compartment. And challenging them to look at their lives holistically. It's not like, you know, you live by faith and trust in the Lord in one aspect. It's every aspect of what we do that's lived by faith and trust in the Lord. And that just sounds so relieving of burden, you know, on on you um, and how you look at your life, not just in church, not just in family, but even in your uh, when you go to work, you know, the the ma'od aspect that you were describing there and and uh, is something that we also do by faith and not by sight. And, 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 and I guess when we look at it that way, the idea of looking at it by trusting and loving and dedicating to God, I find so relieving of pressure and stress because it just uh, uh, allows for me to be able to see the way the Lord works. And it's not up to me. Uh, and I don't need to make sense of it. And, and it's under the authority of Scripture and the Word of God. I just find that very uh, refreshing and uh, just lifting a burden off of my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Scott, do you think uh, Deuteronomy, you know, there's discussions that, you know, some people will say that uh, the book of Genesis is like the most important book of the old Testament or even Isaiah. But honestly, the way that you talked about uh, Deuteronomy six, but Deuteronomy as a whole, I really think you can make the case that Deuteronomy is singly the most important not just Old Testament book, but perhaps scriptural book as a whole. Yeah, well, thanks for that uncontroversial question. Um, I think you're right. I let me let me put it this way, and this this probably this is where personality starts to infect, you know, intellectual inquiry. I, I have a I have a personal aversion to this is the most and this is the best. You know, <laughs> but but I hear what you're saying. No, you're absolutely right. I, I think when it comes to particularly what we may call it, maybe more systematic theological, thematic theological approach to our relationship with God, life, the universe, and everything, I think Deuteronomy is kind of the hub. You know, if if you look at the canon of the Old Testament it's kind of the hub. Everything's kind of building up to it in the Pentateuch. These stories and these events that take place build up to the theology that is expressed in Deuteronomy. And then everything that comes after is sort of a reflecting back. Obviously, with the histories, I think you can make a clear argument that, um, that Isaiah, even though some would dispute that, I think Isaiah is refuting back or, or reflecting back on the theology of, um, 
of knowing the Lord and fearing the Lord with your whole heart that we find in Deuteronomy. Obviously, Jeremiah is. And I think there's an argument to be made that Deuteronomy is a hub or a centerpiece around which the canon of the Hebrew Bible rotates in many ways. Now, you can also do that, I think, with Genesis. You know, I, th- I think rightly, you know, your, your professor, Meredith Klein, you know, argues that really it's the opening of Genesis that is, in some ways, the most important part of the Bible, right? It sets the whole stage for everything else is just dealing with that. And I think in terms of a redemptive historical approach to Scripture, that's, that's actually, that's, that's right. When you talk about redemptive history, the book of Genesis has this special place, particularly those first chapters that are setting the, the trajectory for the rest of redemptive history. So I think we can do this in different ways, you know, in terms of thematic theology, Deuteronomy, in terms of redemptive history, Genesis, you could probably argue that in terms of ethics or something, you know, th- th- there's other places you might go. But yeah, I think, the, I think the book of Deuteronomy and then Deuteronomy 6 as the, if, if Deuteronomy 6 is the hub of Deuteronomy and Jesus does not correct anyone who tells him that Deuteronomy 6 is the summary of the law, he says, you, you're right, and that's a good observation. So if Deuteronomy 6 is the hub of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is the hub of the Old Testament, then there is a, there, there is a centrality there that, that uh, we don't want to miss. Amen. <laughs> I have not hesitated to talk about, uh, well, I guess Deuteronomy <laughs> as a more of a canonical hub. Yeah. You know, maybe not a thematic one, but Absolutely. It, it, it just it, the position that it has there definitely sets the uh, criteria of historical writing and then and then even the major prophets are essentially referring always preaching back to Deuteronomy and so in that sense that's um, you know for that reason I think I've never hesitated to say you know that uh, you know, the, the the scriptures the Old Testament as a whole is utterly dependent on on Deuteronomy yeah it's not nearly as exciting with all of the narratives as you would find in, you know, Genesis, but Hey, you know, fact is fact. Truth is truth. <laughs> well, I think, and that becomes, I think it becomes more evident. Um, that's a good way to end an argument, by the way, fact is fact and truth is truth. I like that. Well, I'm going to start using that more myself. Okay. <laughs> After I say something, I'm just going to go, in fact is fact. It's like God, that guy in the no, right, That one. What that is one that guy in the, okay, we got to leave that in. No, no, no. That one's got to be cut out. The guy in the Mandalorian who says, "What does he say? Like, let it be so, or that this oh, is." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is I the have way. spoken. No, I have yeah. spoken. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I have spoken. I have spoken. <laughs> By the way, I mean Klein in his uh, article on Deuteronomy. I mean he works thematically from Genesis one, two, and three throughout the rest of Scripture more as a thematic intro, and not necessarily as a you know. Genesis 1, 2, 3 is the most important thing. So if you read his stuff on Deuteronomy, yeah. uh, he never says it as much, but you could definitely tell that he is heavily influenced by Deuteronomy in his thinking. So, Well, okay, so there's a microcosmic argument in Deuteronomy itself where you've had the historical prologue, as it were, in chapters 1 through 4, and then there's this moment where Moses says, and this is so that you might know. And then he goes on and now starts giving theology. And, and I think that can be a microcosm for the whole of redemptive history. All of these things starting back in creation and working our way up to the steps of Moab is so you might know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Why? Because he is our God and he is one. And, and, and you know, kind of the whole theological endeavor 
of Deuteronomy sort of pours out of the events of the Pentateuch, right? And they're constantly reflecting back on those events to say, this is why we believe this. This is why we believe that. And that's very covenantal, of course, starting with historical prologue. And it's also, I think, instructive for us today because this is how, this is what we're doing when we do the Lord's Supper. You know, we're doing this in remembrance of the mighty works of redemption and, uh, and, and salvation that the Lord has affected in history, right? So it reminds us that everything we're doing now is an outpouring of the history that precedes us. Everything we should be doing now is an outpouring of the history that precedes us. All right, well, there are a lot of resources out there that we can uh, dive into. Anybody want to offer um, some good reading or viewing for our audience if they want to delve more deeply into covenant theology? Yeah, Cornelis Venema has a nice book on covenant theology in 2017, uh, PNR. I think that's a really useful overview of covenant theology. That is a, one of the other great resources out there that's pretty commonly used and pretty accessible, I would say, for your average reader would be um, O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. That was one of the first attempts at least in Presbyterian circles, to bring together what we might call, you know, federal theology, right? Reform systematic covenantal theology with some of the more recent developments of the 20th century. Um, that Meredith Klein, uh, Dr. Lee's professor, was 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 made played a major role in you know, some of this this um, covenant theology based out of Old Testament theology and biblical theology, particularly revolving around the discovery of these. Hittite and later Neo-Assyrian um, covenant treaties. RTS faculty um, have a, uh, a, a, a volume on covenant theology coming out later this year. It's called Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives. That's edited by Guy Waters, Nick Reed, and John Meather. Um, so keep an eye out for that. It's coming out, I think I already said, with Crossway. So uh, keep an eye out on that, uh, on that being released. Dr. Lee, give us give us the one that we missed. Well, uh, when you mentioned uh, you know Palmer Robertson's book on uh, on the covenant, which I definitely would agree. Uh, if if someone wanted to read something that's a bit not uh, that'll take a different take on it, you know just to sort of see the other side of the discussion, uh, might be something like uh, the introduction to covenant theology by Mike Horton, where they say similar things, but they definitely are not saying the same thing. Uh, and just to see another uh, view of that. But, you know, I think for the most part, they're like 90% uh, similar, although it's always a 10% where it's not the same. That's most interesting. My teacher, Meredith Klein, as you know, uh, I thought uh, has written what in my mind is a very intriguing and provocative book on the relation of covenant and Old Testament canon. Uh, his book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, yeah. It's not the easiest. Well, nothing that Dr. Klein wrote actually is easy, uh, easy reading. But he talks about the 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 structure of our canon, the Old Testament canon. That is, well, I think he'll talk about New Testament canon too, if I remember right. But just the idea of canon uh, can uh, derive its idea uh, from covenant. Now, it doesn't always quite work, and there are times when he seems to force it, but it definitely makes you think, and, and I think there's, um, uh, that's something really uh, intriguing and something I've been very influenced by in my thinking. Maybe one last thing. Uh, I hate to promote something that I have not read, but the, uh, 
the source here is so reliable, I, I, I think it's okay to mention, but our friend Dick Belcher, as you know, just wrote a new book on covenant, the fulfillment of the, of the promises of God and explanation of the covenant. Uh, I know a lot of people have already uh, reviewed it and, and have said good things about it. So even though I haven't read it yet, uh, I can't imagine that being not helpful. And so that might be something uh, worth reading as well. I think Timo's got a recommendation. We definitely need to recommend Your Heart is Lost. Yes, absolutely. I thought that was low and slow across the plate, uh, Dr. Lee, whose, whose email is Vossian. Well, I mean, you know, maybe, all right, you're right, forgive me. I mean, I guess we, I always thought it was a given, but uh, I guess we can never take that for granted. Absolutely. Everyone we just mentioned is basically saying, standing on Voss. <laughs> in fact, to this day, I don't think anybody in that field uh, is saying anything that uh, they're just taking what he has to say and developing it further. So, Talk, talk about a man of his time, too, because he's doing that before the Hittite treaties are getting unpacked. Oh, yeah. He's giving a theological framework, and Warfield is too, and others, but he's giving the theological framework for you know, for what's going to come up in the later 20th century, which is yep. really amazing. Another man of his time, a very impressive man of his time, John T. Rhodes, fellow minister at the IPC, International Presbyterian Church. He's written a great book as well called Covenant Made Simple, a very accessible introduction to covenant theology. I would definitely recommend you to pick that up. Yeah, that is great. One of the things about covenant theology is, is how practical it is. And it's unfortunate that there haven't been more like Jaunty's, there haven't been more, um, you know, really, really clear and full orbed explanations of covenant theology and, and how it affects your reading of the scriptures. All right. So with that said, let's close this discussion on covenant theology. Um, we'll come back uh, to this theme over and over again, no doubt, because it's one that's deeply influential for all of us. And uh, I think it's, it's helpful for the world. It makes the world a better place. So we'll come back to this the topic down the road. But for now, let's go ahead and close out this conversation. It's great to see and talk to you fellas. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Take care. Gray's living in the future. He's living already in this evening, and he can tell us how the day's going to go because, of course, every day changes here in the United States. There's new news, and there's there's new developments to uh, to to wrestle with. Um, you know, right now there's a lot going on in the world, and there's a lot that um, there's a lot to keep up with. And one thing to keep up with is the fact that this is a terrible segue. I'm going to go ahead and just stop on this. <laughs> I, I hate how this is going. That was going to crash into something. It was good. I, I'm like, there's no, there's no way to transition this. Right, it, it is. Whole it, thing. I say hi to Gray. Gray says hi. Then let's go on to, did, you, did I say hi to you? And you said hi back. Yeah. Okay, good. It, yeah, right. It's like, it's like, there's a lot going on in the news right now. Things are always changing, but what's what's always constant <laughs> is reformed faith and practice. Always there for you. I won't walk you through my thought process. I'm thinking I say the same thing about Gray every time.
So what can I say that's new? Oh, he's, it's, it's, the, it's Monday evening for Ray. That's, that's a new thing. Uh, and then it just okay. went from there. This, is, this could be a, you know, an exercise on what not to do on the floor of ordination. <laughs> right? Don't just come up with your answer on the fly. Okay. 